chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, <clears throat> saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And what and of the end of the world? Now, folks, the Bible tells us that there are unseen forces, uh, an unseen realm, unseen to the physical eye, but a realm by which we have knowledge because of the things the Bible tells us. God has revealed to us certain things about this unseen realm. And it tells us that the unseen realm governs the physical realm, the seen realm. We see uh, in Jesus' temptation where the devil showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said unto him, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms, for they have been delivered unto me. So Satan is certainly telling Jesus, identifying that he's the active agent behind all the things that we see. And the, the one thing that he identified as within his power is power over governments. Well, that explains why things are in the mess they're in then. So if we see and accept the word of God as truth to what's behind the things that we see going on around us, then it reveals to us the devil's plan. The devil's plan and that which he works his influence upon the children of men is to dominate and control God's people. Folks, the things that are taking place around us are an attack against God. They're not an attack against us. It's ultimately an attack against God. You remember when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus? The light shined around from heaven, shined from heaven, round about Paul and his company, and the light was brighter than the noonday sun. It was so blinding that they had to shut their eyes against it. And Jesus asked Paul, he was Saul at that time, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And then Saul asked, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus identifies himself. And then tells him, speaks again, and makes mention of the fact that Paul, who thought he was just fighting against Christians, so-called Christians, without any inclination or understanding that they were of God and what they believed was of God, Jesus tells him, the persecution you bring against my church is really persecuting me. Now, the people were suffering for it. The things that he brought against them, they suffered for them in the physical realm. But Jesus identified Paul's act of persecution as against him, not against the people. Well, in the same way, if we see the things that are going on around us and recognize the spiritual import of these things, even the disciples, as uneducated and as simple as they were, they recognized, obviously through the teachings in the synagogues, they recognized that there was an end of the age coming. They recognized that the Messiah would come to the earth 
and then return to the earth to benefit them and to help them against the, the ungodliness, lawlessness, and sin that's in the world. Well, folks, if that's true, then why don't we focus on that rather than the things that are going on around us? These guys are showing an interest in the, the end time events. And folks, this was 2,000 years ago. How much closer are we to the end time events? So Jesus answers the question. Remember what they asked again. Tell us, when shall these things be? Now these things he's talking about initially was the destruction of the temple where not one stone would be left upon another. That happened in 70 AD. So when shall these things be? Talking about the destruction of the temple. The second question they ask, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, is different from the end of the world. The Bible tells us that Jesus shall return for the church. What the church calls the rapture is not, that word's not in, in the scripture, but the church calls the rapture. What the Bible does tell us about is a catching away. Jesus is coming back for the church to take us out of here. Now, folks, how important is making your rent going to be at that time? The Bible says he'll come in a, in a blinking of an eye, the twinkling of an eye. Thank God he's coming. It says we'll be caught up together with him in the heavens or in the air. It says we'll receive our redeemed bodies. Instantly our problem with the flesh ends and he takes us into heaven with him. I'll ask again, how important are the things of the earth going to be at that moment in time? Well, then why should we place undue importance on it now? Paul wrote to the church and said, if you be risen with Christ, set your affection on things of the earth, of, of things above, not of things of, the, things of the earth. We need to live like Jesus is coming back because yeah. he is coming. Now, some people argue about, is it going to be before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? Folks, the church is going to go on the first load. <laughs> now, rather than argue about that thing, and I think the Bible does tell us, I think it's clear when it tells us that we, the people of God, have not been appointed unto wrath. Well, the tribulation is called Jacob's wrath. Talking about God's wrath upon the people for the, uh, upon the earth because of the injustice that's been done and influenced by Satan against the people of God. So I don't have any doubt. It's, it's clear to me that the church will be raptured or caught up into the air before the tribulation begins. So their questions are about the end times and, and shows us that that's something that's certainly on their minds and that they have questions about. Now, let me ask you this. These disciples, if they hadn't spent the last three years with Jesus, how interested would they be in the end times? I would submit to you folks that it was the fact that they walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry for the three almost three and a half years that they did 
And that's what made them conscious and aware of spiritual things. The more emphasis you put on spiritual things, the more attention you give to spiritual things, the more you'll be aware of the spiritual realm rather than the physical realm. Jesus answers their questions. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So the time of the end will be a time of great deception. Well, the Bible calls the devil the deceiver. It tells us that the, the method that the devil works against us is deception. But it indicates that there's a supernatural means or work of deception that will be taking place and coming against the people of God in the last days. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many. Now the deception he's talking about here is people having the wrong idea of God and what God does and who God uses. I don't believe any of the church or much of the church at all would be fooled by somebody saying Jesus wasn't really the Messiah, it's me. But when he says many shall come in my name saying I am Christ. Come in his name means they're not denying that Jesus was the, was the Messiah. If they come in Jesus' name, then clearly they're identifying or, or agreeing that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, then why would he say that they would say that I am Christ? Because the church is going to be besieged. Really, the world is going to be besieged at the end times with what other people say in the name of Jesus what other people say about who God is and what God does. And we have a responsibility. We have a very clear warning from Jesus himself saying, know who I am, know what I do, so that you be not deceived. Well, it's only people that are going to be aware of and emphasizing the spirit realm that are going to recognize the difference between what the false prophets say and what the Bible says. There's never been a time in the history of mankind that it's been more important for us to fellowship God, with God through prayer and through his word. Never. Never. Paul says in the last days perilous times will come. One of the meanings of that term perilous times is strength reducing times. Well how are we going to overcome strength reducing times? Through prayer and fellowship with God in his word. So he said, take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name. Many shall come in my name. It's not going to be some off exclusive situation. It's going to be a prominent issue. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. This word nation is the word ethnos. It's the word where we get ethnic and in, in uh, other terms, other variations of the word ethnic. It's talking about race wars. Races shall rise against races, and kingdoms, countries against countries. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. 
and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended. Notice that phrase. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Now, folks, who are the people he's talking about betraying each other and, and hating each other? It's not talking about the unsaved. It's not talking about the heathen. Notice again, it says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended. Well, who's going to be offended by the betrayal? The ones that are betrayed. So he's talking about, here he's talking about believers turning against believers. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. By the way, Jesus gave them a new commandment in John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34. Remember, a new commandment I give unto you that you may love one another as I have loved you. That's the new commandment. And notice it talks about the offense and the betrayals shall bring hate or hatred among those who are commanded to love. And many false prophets shall rise. Notice it's many, not a few. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Here's an attack against the new commandment of love again. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Now folks, compare what we know about in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6 with what Jesus said about the end. Jesus said the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. That means with proof or evidence. It's talking about the power of God. It's talking about healings. It's talking about miracles. Well, Haggai chapter 2 tells us that the glory of the last day church will be greater than of the former. So here Jesus is confirming what the Old Testament says that one of the signs of the end is going to be the preaching of the gospel with power. It may be bad news for some that don't have their eyes on the right thing. But it's good news for others who refuse to be deceived and stick with the word. Now again, notice that phrase and many shall be offended. Many shall be offended. Offenses are one of the things that the devil uses, one of the greatest tools of the devil concerning deception. I want you to look with me to, well, I can't avoid it. I'm going to have to do the whole thing. Look with me to Mark chapter 4. Beginning in verse 2, Jesus taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, Behold, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And others fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased <clears throat> and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. 
<clears throat> and when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive. That hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now folks, it sounds like Jesus is saying that he doesn't want people to get saved. Well, that can't be right. <laughs> the Bible says it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not into cheap salvation. Jesus is interested in, and God is interested in, people turning their lives over to him. Not just trying to escape something bad coming down the road. Jesus gave everything about himself, everything of himself for us. He demands nothing less of you and me. Well, thank you for your enthusiastic response. <laughs> Martin Luther called, uh, had a phrase that he gave to some people's attitude. He called it cheap grace. Because people were using the idea of the forgiveness of God and the love of God to free them to do anything they wanted to do and live in whatever sin they wanted to. He called that cheap grace. Verse 13, Jesus said unto them, Know ye not this parable? Then how will you know all parables? There's something about this one that's a key that unlocks all the other ones. Jesus explains, The sower is sowing the word. Now he sows the word... It's the same word that he sows into four different types of people. The ground is people. So he sows the word, same sowing, same word, same planting technique into four different types of people. Or we could say it this way. The world can be divided into four types of people concerning the word of God. These are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they heard, have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. One type of people... Is the ones are the ones that don't care about God, don't care about the things of God, couldn't care less what the, the Bible says about things coming, totally and completely ignorant and unaware of the spiritual battle that's going on around us in the end of the world that's coming. Mankind is rushing headlong into eternity, and a lot of people don't care. Now, I choose to believe that the major reason they don't care is because they don't know. But that certainly doesn't apply to everybody. Next type of ground he speaks to is in verse 16. These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root or no moisture in themselves. Moisture is the thing that enables a root of a plant to go deep into the soil. They have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterwards, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, notice this. Immediately they are offended. Immediately they are offended. Well, if offenses are one of Satan's greatest tools against the church and the people of God, then we see what he uses, what Jesus said he would use to cause those offenses. Affliction and persecution. Hard times and people being against them. 
And these are they likewise which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are people that are distracted. These are people that give more attention to the physical or the seen realm than the unseen realm. And the word of God that describes that unseen realm. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So he says there are four types of people. I'm not sure we can apply a mathematical formula to it, but if we could, he's saying 25% of people don't care. 25% of people care accept the word of God but don't continue in the word of God don't meditate in the word of God don't water the word of God that they've heard or that's been planted and then when affliction or, or persecution arise they are offended 25% of the population are going to operate, be operating according to offenses then he says 25% of the people of the population are going to be distracted by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust or the desires for other things. But 25% are going to be good ground. 25% of the people are going to take hold of the Word of God, continue in it, water it, and see it grow and produce fruit. Now of those 25%, one-third of them will produce 30-fold results. One-third of them will produce 60-fold results. And one-third of them will produce hundredfold results. So one-third of 25% will bring forth maximum efficiency and effectiveness to the Word of God. That's 8%, folks. 8% in this formula Jesus gives us, if we can apply numbers to it like we're suggesting, 8% will reap the benefits, the full benefits of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But only 8%. Only one-third of the people that produce any results for God whatsoever. 8%. Well, I hope you choose to be in that 8%. I know I am. And I'll do whatever it takes to stay in that 8%. People talk about one percenters. The important thing are the 8 percenters. Now, what do these offenses look like? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard, these, heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? You remember the story of why John was put in prison. Herod married his sister, his brother's wife in a very public manner and so forth. And John the Baptist spoke out against it. And John the Baptist became a thorn in Herod's side. And finally, the stepdaughter of this wife that Herod had taken did some lewd suggestive dance during a feast or a banquet that they were having. And Herod got so turned on by this that he told her that he'd give her anything that he wanted, that she wanted up to half of the kingdom. 
after conferring with her mother, she decided on the head of John the Baptist. So John's in prison. Folks, I would submit to you that there is not an anointing for being in prison. When John the Baptist would preach in the wilderness, he clearly identified Jesus as the Messiah. You remember when John, when John was preaching and Jesus came to be baptized of John the Baptist, John clearly said, clearly identified that this was the Lamb of God that would be slain for the sins of the world. He didn't have any doubt at that time. Why is he doubting now that he's in prison? Well, let's keep reading, see if we can get the answer. So John's disciples ask, are, he, are, are thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. Verse 6, And blessed is he that whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, Jesus' answer wasn't, oh, yeah, remember, tell John to remember the things that his mother told him about me, his cousin. He didn't say any of that kind of stuff. He referred to the proof and the evidence that he was the Messiah. He talked about the blind that were healed, the lame that were healed, and the dead that were raised up, brought back from the dead, in other words. Jesus said at one time, talking about the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus said, if I hadn't done the works among them that I did, then they couldn't be held responsible for not believing in me. So he refers to the works that he did. The healing of the blind, the lame, the cleansing of the lepers, the raising of the dead. Now, folks, if God's attitude, and I, I assume you believe with me when Jesus spoke these things, he's accepting and sharing in with God's attitude. But if God's attitude was that sinners cannot be held responsible for their sin unless they see power in evidence, then that gives us a hint of what he's looking for in the last days before he returns, too. This gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness with proof and evidence and then shall the end come. Now why did Jesus add this part to John's disciples? Blessed is he that is not offended in me. Because he realizes that John in and of himself would never question Jesus being the Messiah. He knew. But because of the affliction, because of the adversity, because of the terrible conditions that John was subject to thrown in jail to experience all because he did the right thing and spoke out against injustice and evil John is on the edge of taking offense at what has been done to him so Jesus says when you tell him of the miracles and the power that's been on display. Tell him this too. Blessed is he that is not offended in me. 
See, folks, the devil wants to drag things out for you for the express purpose of you being offended and mad at God. You remember the story of Job. Job had terrible things come against him. But Job was in great shape spiritually. He was in, his relationship with God was intact until he began to speak against God. There were things he didn't have answers for. But no matter what he did, no matter what his friends accused him of, some friends, by the way, no matter what they accused him of, he was fine until he spoke out against God. And then God appears and says, Job, where were you when I created the earth? In other words, who are you to bring accusation against me? Well, I'm sure Job in the beginning felt like he was justified in bringing accusation against God. Because look at the things that had happened to him. Look at the evil that had befallen him. He had reason to be offended. But because he didn't recognize or understand who was doing what against him, he spoke out against God. And that was the only thing Job had to repent of when the blessing of the Lord came back on him and the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. So I want you to see that the devil uses circumstances for the purpose of influencing you to be offended. He can't make you to be. But he wants to give you every opportunity to be. Now look with me over to Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 16, here's another instance of somebody being offended, uh, really everybody being offended in this town. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, the significance of that is they understood. Apparently, it was a well-known, well-established teaching that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Well, they think they know his father. They think Joseph is the father, along with Mary, the parents of Jesus. So how can Jesus claim to be the Messiah since we see and know his parents? What they thought they knew Rob them of the blessing of God. Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, 
and when great famine was throughout the land. But none of them, under none of them, was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. In other words, she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now, do you remember the story of Naaman? Naaman is a captain in the Syrian army, and he contracts leprosy. He tries everything that he can to get rid of this leprosy, and nothing works. Well, there's a little slave girl that's a servant in his household. She is a, an Israelite, and so she says, why don't you send down for the prophet? We're well acquainted with what prophets do, she says. He'll lay his hands on you or minister in you in some way, and this leprosy would be cleansed. Now, folks, in olden times, even under the old covenant, people were expecting and used to the word of God bringing results. It's only in this modern day where we've gotten so wise. That now all of a sudden we know better. Kind of like they thought they knew better about Joseph being Jesus' father. Well, the little girl convinces Naaman to go down to where the prophet is, Elisha. Naaman is desperate. He'll do anything, I'm sure. And so they get to Elisha's house. Word is sent to Elisha within the house that this great man from Syria is there to receive healing for his body. So Elisha doesn't even get out of his easy chair. He sends word by one of his servants out to Naaman and tells him, go wash in the, pool of, in the Jordan River. Dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll come again clean. Well, Naaman is hot. He's upset with this. You don't treat him like this. You don't snub him. You don't refuse to see or give him an audience. And so he's, he's going off on this. He's talking about how stupid it would be to dip seven times in the Jordan River. He says, are not the rivers of Syria greater than the Jordan River, cleaner than the Jordan River? What is this about? Well, after he rants and raves for a little bit, some of the people in his company say, now, Master, if he had asked you to do something hard, you would have willingly done that. Now, that shows us, gives us a glimpse into his mindset. His mindset is that he's going to have to do something hard or difficult or unusual to reap the benefits of healing. It contributes to his attitude that God's really not the healer. But if some mystical man tells him to do something unusual, then somehow or another that magically is going to bring him results. But as the people of his company, somebody in the group at least, said, now, Master, if he had asked you to do something hard, you'd have done it. What will it hurt? Let's just do what he said. Well, Naaman does. Dips seven times in the Jordan River and comes again clean. Now, Jesus makes the point that there were a lot of lepers in Israel 
But healing wasn't sent to them. But to Naaman, a Gentile, a captain in the army that's the, the enemy of Israel, God ministered to them. Now notice what it says about them. It says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him under the brow of the hill whereupon his city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Now I'm going to skip real quickly over to, Matthew, to Mark chapter 6 and read Mark's account of it. It's real short, so let me read it here. And he went out from thence and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. We just read in, in Luke chapter 4 what he taught. He said that he was anointed to heal the sick. So he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought in by his hands? He's talking about the things that he's already accomplished in Capernaum. That's what Luke 4 identifies. So they said, is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Luke says they were filled with great wrath. Mark says they were offended. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Verse 5, And he could there do no mighty work. Luke 4 has already told us he was anointed to come there to do mighty works. But because they were offended at him, because they let offenses control them, they failed to reap the benefits that God that Jesus said he was in their city to bring. Well, if that's a, a principle that holds true in every case, then no wonder the devil tries to work so hard to make people offended. If he can get you to yield to offense, then he can rob you of the things that God has provided for us. So he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. That means unable now, some people get hot about that and they say, well, the Son of God is able to do anything he wants to. Well, not according to the Bible. See, Jesus set aside his heavenly power and glory and he ministered on the earth not as the Son of God, but as a man, a human being anointed of the Holy Ghost. That has to be true. Because it wouldn't have been necessary for Jesus to be anointed by John in the Jordan River. Anointed with the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Who's going to anoint God? How could you even anoint God? But because Jesus set aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. He had to be empowered by the Holy Ghost just like we would have to be if God called us to do his works as well. So he could there do no mighty work. Save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. This word sick in, in Vines, the Expository Dictionary of New Testament words, defines this word sick as sickly. People with minor ailments, not too much wrong with them. That's the only results he got in Nazareth. A few folks with minor ailments. Maybe he cured a headache or two. 
And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What do offenses lead to? Unbelief. What can God not perform in the presence of? Unbelief. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is necessary to receive from God. And so without faith, it's impossible to please him. God is pleased when we receive what Jesus purchased for us. That's what pleases God. Not some suffering or some sacrifice or some hard work like Naaman was looking for. But it's faith that pleases God. So if we combine these two accounts, Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 14, then we see the work of the devil in his own hometown of Nazareth. Now, folks, if you want to do good anywhere, you want to do good in your hometown. If you want to prove anything, you want to prove it to that group that you grew up with. But oftentimes that's the, the hardest group to deal with because they think they know you. And what they think they know about you isn't going to line up with anything good that God gives you. Let me show you another example of offenses in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She's persistent. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So her first encounter with Jesus, when she petitions Jesus for healing power for her daughter, Jesus doesn't say a word. She doesn't quit. She continues to beseech Jesus for help. Jesus then says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, folks, you would think that would be the, the defining moment, the end of the, the issue. Jesus clearly says, I'm not sent to help you. Most people would consider that as Jesus saying no. Then came she and cussed him out. I wouldn't be surprised if that was what it said. What did she do? Now, she's got a perfect opportunity to be offended here, folks. She's got good reason to be offended. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And because God is so syrupy, sweet with love, Jesus said, well, okay. No, Jesus answered her and said, It's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. 
Now, Gentiles were considered, anybody that wasn't of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were considered by the Jews to be dogs. The Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people. He said they were. And as a result, they had his help that nobody else had or nobody else could have. And so the Jews deemed everybody else in the world outside of themselves to be dogs. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they meant in coming up with that name for everybody else. But at the very least, it sounds a bit derogatory. It certainly doesn't sound to be something that Jesus would use, a term that he would use. So she's had an opportunity to get offended when he didn't answer her. She's had an opportunity to be defended, uh, to be offended when he said that he wasn't sent to help her. She has an opportunity to be defended, uh, to be offended when Jesus calls her a dog. But notice what she does. She says, truth, Lord. Now, folks, if Jesus is Lord, if he is the Messiah, as she identifies her belief, then anything and everything he says has to be true. If Jesus lies to her or lies to anybody anywhere along the way, then he's not a perfect sinless sacrifice for us. Which means there's still more work to be done to achieve salvation. But the Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was set at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. Well, you don't sit down until the work is finished. And the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God is proof that God's plan of redemption is complete. So she says, truth, Lord. The Messiah can only speak truth. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Notice how she overcame the offense or the potential for offenses in her own situation. She recognized who Jesus was and she went with whatever she said, whatever he said to her with the one caveat and that is she turned what he said, the truth that he spoke, she turned it to herself. Now, folks, I can show you a million people that will talk themselves out of what the Bible clearly says is theirs. But she turned what Jesus said to her advantage. Folks, there's only one reason why the Bible gives us or makes to us promises. There's only one reason why any scripture is given to mankind, and that is, well, two reasons, I guess. One is for information. There are a lot of scriptures in the Bible that just give us information about God. But outside of informational scriptures, the only reason that the Bible would tell us anything that belongs to us 
anything that was purchased by the blood of Jesus is for God to bring to pass in your life. God said himself, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. In other words, the word has power when you speak it. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. God's the first witness, you're the second. When God speaks it, it makes power available to you in whatever area the scripture pertains. When you speak it, it activates that power in God's ears for the purpose of accomplishing what God sent it to do and prospering in that which he pleads. So she turned it toward herself to her own advantage. I'll remind you of a scripture in Psalm 119, verse 165. It says this, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. Now, folks, one of the greatest things, greatest areas of offense we have to deal with is when somebody does us wrong. We see a lot of people protesting the things that were done in Minneapolis concerning the death of this gentleman. He wasn't squeaky clean. He wasn't a perfect guy by any means. Nobody, nobody else is either. But nobody should have to die the way he did. And you've got people that have had similar experiences, maybe not to the same degree, but similar experiences with the police or with governments or any other myriad of places where there is racial discrimination or other types of discrimination too. They have a right to protest. I join them in their protest. I don't believe that means every policeman in the nation is a bad guy nor that every policeman in the nation should suffer the penalty for what wrong people did. In any area of endeavor, in any career, you've got good people and bad people. Think about how many times the Bible warns us against false prophets. It warns us against false prophets. It warns us against false ministers. It warns us against false apostles. There are bad people in every area of life. And if there was some legislation that could be passed that would make bad people good people, I think I'd support that. But the only thing that makes, takes a person from being a bad person to a good person is the blood of Jesus. Now, the Bible mentions, identifies three people, three groups that you and I are supposed to love. 1 John 3, 9 says, we know we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. So we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus told us and gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan to explain what loving your neighbor is. But then the third area, the third person 
the third group that Jesus told us to love was our enemies. He said in Matthew chapter 4, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 44. He said, you've heard it said to love your neighbor. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, folks, despitefully use means on purpose. It means on purpose. And when we face an offense, whether it's as individuals or as groups, I've heard some of the stories that people have told people that, that we know, some even people part of the church, that have suffered at the hands of policemen because of their skin color. Well, that's just wrong. You can't defend that. Nobody should even try to defend that. But the real question is, how do you fix it? I think the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can. So if you're in a situation where somebody has done you wrong like that, you have a right to protest. You really have a right to do anything you want to. But the one thing that we're going to have to overcome is unforgiveness attached to whatever evil has been done to us. When Jesus talked about the, the definition of faith in Mark chapter 11, what I believe are the most concise and complete scriptures pertaining to the operation of faith, he immediately added to it, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against anybody. It's the only hindrance that Jesus identified to faith working. And that's unforgiveness. Somebody described unforgiveness as drinking poison and expecting the other guy to die. And it's really a pretty good analogy. Because unforgiveness hurts you. It doesn't hurt the person you're, un you're not forgiving toward the person you haven't forgiven and I'm sure we could look at our own lives and our own experience in life and see the number of times the many times that Satan has used unforgiveness to rob us of the blessing of God I don't believe unforgiveness is worth Anything that Jesus purchased, is it to you? Holding a grudge just hurts you. Many times the person you're holding a grudge against doesn't even know. Other times they know and don't care. Jesus was talking about forgiveness. And Peter spoke of and said, how often should I have to forgive? If my friend sins against me and repents seven times, and Jesus said, no, a little closer to seven times, 70. You know what the, the disciples responded? 
They said, Lord, increase our faith. What they did know was good. They knew what most Christians never find out. And that is unforgiveness is a matter of faith. It's an act of faith. It's never a feeling. It's never a feeling. Now, folks, when we look around and we see how many things that are taking place in this present day end of lockdown time that we are, it's easy to see that emotions are running high in a lot of different areas. Now, since we know that God never leads us by emotion, then whenever we see something that's emotionally charged, it's real easy to see who's behind that. It doesn't mean the people that are involved in it are evil. Some may be. I certainly can't throw rocks at that because of all the people in the ministry Jesus warned us against. But if there's ever been a time in the history of mankind where we need to be and need to focus on being led by the Spirit of God rather than emotions, it's now. Now, of those different groups that Jesus said to love, you may have to work on the loving your enemies part more than anything else. I don't have that much to deal with in that. You may have to deal with the fact that love, as described by loving your neighbor, means to take action to help them. I don't have too much problem with that either. The part that I have the hardest time with is loving the brethren. Because I see in such magnified measure that Christians work against themselves by supporting and standing with the very things and some of the very people that are working against the plans and the purposes of God. And it's real hard for me not to stand here and just say they're idiots. But I would never say that. But I am sorely tempted. <laughs> but I'm too spiritual to say that. <laughs> Folks, we all have things we have to deal with. Amen. And we will always have things that we have to deal with. Amen. Always. And the only thing that can help, the only thing that can make a change in any respect whatsoever is eternal life. Now we can live above these perilous times. But we have to be aware of what does overcome the perilous times. We have to understand what renews our strength in these days that are strength reducing. And that all comes back to the Word. It's only through the Word of God applied in our lives that we can live in victory in the midst of the devil's finest hour. In his greatest operation of wrath against the 
people of God as he tries to destroy the earth around us. It's the love of God that will be seen and recognized. It's the peace of God that people will come to. And it's the power of God that he himself wants to display. We can't afford to harbor unforgiveness, no matter what anybody has done. Now, when people hear me say things like this or hear some other ministers say things like this, it's so easy to say, but you don't understand what was done. Well, if you need to share that so that you can get it off your chest, that's fine. But before you tell me, before or after you tell me the situation is the same, you still have the only one, the same conclusion, the same remedy. And that's to walk in love. Amen. To forgive. Forgive by faith if you have to. And you will have to. But it still comes down to forgive. I believe Jesus is coming back for a people that are living above the emotions that are carrying the rest of the world. We have to show ourselves to be different. And it's only the love of God that will make that clear, make that plain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you reveal the truth to us so that we can walk in victory. No matter what the devil's doing around us, we claim victory. Now, Father, we ask your blessing on those that have offended us. We choose by faith, by the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart, we choose to forgive. whether it's our enemies, our neighbors, or even the brethren that have offended us. We declare that we forgive them in Jesus' precious name. Father, we ask your blessing upon them. We ask that you would pour your goodness unto them, out upon them, in great, great measure. To show your goodness, Father. Father, we choose to walk in love. We choose to forgive. We choose to let go of those things that have held us in bondage. And Lord, every time we think about them or the situation... We will take those thoughts captive and simply declare that we're walking in love. And whenever we, we remember it or remember them, we will ask once again for your blessing to be upon them above measure. Now, Father, we declare we're free. We may not feel any different than we did but as an act of our faith, we declare that we're free for our faith to work. We declare that that freedom 
removes the chains of bondage that may have held us back. We love you, Father. And we choose to forgive like you forgive. Because it's your love that's shed abroad in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, it's always going to be the basics that put us over. It's always going to be the simple reliance upon God's word, reliance upon the truth that will set us free and keep us free. It's not some new revelation. It'll never be some new revelation. It's simply acting on those things that we know. That'll lead us into victory every time. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. We love you. Have a great week. Join us tonight for Healing School Online if you can.